All right, we're going to get started. Um, I really should have tried to head this off. Marcus got trapped by Steve Wheeler, so I don't know if Marcus is going to be able to show up. So come on up here, Marcus. Um, are you are you on? Should be now. Okay. Thank you, Stephanie. Uh, so could we just welcome Marcus because this is not easy. And let me explain what I mean by it's not easy. He came up this morning from Tucson for our monthly meetings, right? Yeah. And, yep. then, and then you spent all afternoon at your mother-in-law's? My mother-in-law's house, Like yeah. I said, not easy. And then, um, <laughs> and then you had to come over here tonight. So this has been a full day for you. It has been. It okay. has, but it's been good. All right. It's been really and good. So I, I just want to say I'm really thrilled that you agreed to do this. Thank you so much for doing this. Uh, and we are glad that you, you're here. My job tonight, as I told you, is I really just want to try and tee you up okay. and let you kind of talk and, and let the spirit lead you to where you want to go. But I, I mean, I have some questions, but okay. uh, it's your story, and I want you to be able to tell your story. And we will eventually get to re-reconcile, we reconcile, but I, wa I want to kind of let people know a little bit more about your background as we start. So uh, you, tell us about being at Tucson Redemption, how, much, how long you've been there, what you do there, and tell us about your family. Okay. I'm excited to be here this evening. Just, I, I'm very grateful, Frank. Thank you. Thank you, Stephanie, and thank uh, Tyler, all the staff here. Um, uh, like Frank said, uh, coming up, it's always exciting for me to come up to, uh, to Phoenix to meet the other pastors, to interact, and we just, we, I love it. So thank you for having me. Uh, I've been in Redemption Tucson for two years. Uh, it'll be two years in November, and um, my family, uh, I, they're home, and they wish they could have been here with me, but I left home pretty early. We have a five-year-old named Lou, um, just started kindergarten. We have a just-turned-two-year-old who thinks she's three. She just goes from one. She says, how old are you? She says, I'm three. Or she's two. <laughs> uh, named Rosie, Charity Rose. We call her Rosie. Um, and then we have a four-month-old named Baxley. Um, Lou, the first one, is named after my mother, um, Rosie is named after um, my wife's grandmother, whose husband, they immigrated to this country in the 1940s or 50s, and his name was Adolf. 1940s, 50s, Adolf. <laughs> um, yeah, not a good name. And she had a, he had a real hard time establishing community, finding work, and all those kind of things. And her, my wife's dad remembers his mother praying for him praying for, that he would find community, and she was always praying. And so she was a praying woman. So when he, he actually, my wife's, my wife's father passed away in 2017, and he, one of his dying wishes was that if we had a girl, we should name her Charity Rose. So we named the second girl after mm -hmm. her. And my, my son, Baxley, is named after a civil rights lawyer, and, um, and he's still alive in Alabama, uh, in September of 1963, there was a bombing in a church, in, in, in the Baptist church in, in, I think, Birmingham. And one of the girls' names was Addie Mae Collins. And I thought if we, if we had a girl, we would name her Addie Mae, but we had a boy. So we found this lawyer who actually op reopened the case against those people who bombed that church who were not prosecuted at first. So he's still alive, and we've been trying to get a hold of him to let him know we named our son after him. <laughs> so that's, that's where Baxley comes from. Um, yeah. And uh, 
Yeah, so my wife is Annie. Annie was Annie grew up here uh, on 15th and Northern in that area, and her mom is in North is in South Dakota for the summers, um, and then comes back here in the winter. So I had the whole house. I had to do some duties, but oh, that's good. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, where where did your wife go to high school? Uh, she started off at Sunny Slope. Let me get this right, and then went to Northwest Christian. Yes. Wow. My wife Jackie went to Sunny Slope. Uh, did she no, no, she graduated in Maybe. 85. No, um, <laughs> and our daughters went to Northwest Christian. Okay. Oh, yeah. So that's interesting. I didn't know that. That's, that's cool. Um, and and where did, did she grow up going to church? She did. They went to Open Door Fellowship um, up in Butler. In my, in my Open Door Fellowship. Oh, yeah. Yeah, up on, I think, Butler and something. We have a number of people who are really familiar with Open okay. Door Fellowship. That's where so. she went to church. Her yeah. mo my mother-in-law now goes to Christ Church Anglican. Which is up here on uh, Maryland. Yeah. I think Maryland or Missouri. Yeah. Missouri. Yeah. Yeah, it's Missouri. on Missouri, right. Okay, so now now I, I memorized my first question, so uh. now I gotta get my notes. <laughs> okay. So uh, tell all right, so tell us where you grew up and tell us maybe some stories about the challenges around that. Okay, so I grew up despite everyone people says I don't have an accent. I grew up in Liberia, West Africa. Um, a land that was a place, a country that was founded by freed slaves from here. So Liberia was founded in 1847, the only piece of Africa besides Ethiopia that was never colonized. Um, so when the slaves were, when the transatlantic slave trade ended and people were being sent back to Africa, that's, one, that's the place they went to. So President James Monroe uh, started a charter and started to send people, African-Americans, who wanted to go back to Africa, back to this land of liberty, Liberia. So Liberia, I would always say, is the closest thing you will come to of America as far as government structure and, and, and policies and driving and all those kind of things as you can get in Africa. I, I go to a lot of African-American churches and we try to make bridges so that people can go back and visit Africa. And I tell them, go back to Liberia. It's English speaking. There are Jacksons, there are Johnsons, there are Bradleys, there are Coopers, there are all the names that we have from here are in Liberia, right? Uh, so I grew up in Liberia. Um, Liberia is, a, um, is a, not a segregated country, but a country that is very highly class. It, the class system is kind of rigid. Uh, about 20% of the people in Liberia are descendants of freed slaves. And the other 80% are tribal people who were there when the, when the freed slaves came back. And there was a conflict, between, there was always a, a conflict between those two groups. Um, the the, the American Liberians, we call them, could afford to send their kids back here to school. And, and they were the ruling class for 150 years or so. My parents are both native Liberians. So we're tribal people, I have my, you can, we can talk about this another time, but in my tribe, in my tribe uh, I'm a crew, from the crew tribe, we are marked, um, when you're born you're marked so people can identify what village your parents came out of and what kind of group they, they come from. So I have my tribal marks. I don't speak my tribal languages because I didn't grow up in the village. I grew up in a city, the capital city of Monrovia, named after James Monroe, right? Liberian flag is one star instead of 50 stars, same design. You see it looks like the Puerto Rican flag, but it's 11 stripes instead of 13. Our government is the same thing president, two houses of Congress, all those things. Our laws are basically the same because the first five presidents of Liberia were freed slaves from here. Um, where was I? So my dad 
Um, my dad got a, my dad left his village as a child um, to get educated, live with another family, a family of um, kind of missionaries, right? Missionaries would train people and, and educate them, and then they would have, they would take kids in who wanted to learn, and those kids would work around the house, and they would in turn send them to school. My dad was one of those kids. And when he, when he finished school, he came to the city, brought my mom to the city, and he took a job at, in, a, in, a, in a secret service of Liberia. My dad worked for three presidents and eventually made it to the, to the rank of assistant director of the secret service of the country in 19, 1978. And in 1980, there was a military coup in Liberia, and a man named Samuel Doe. Um, a master sergeant in the military overthrew the government and really cleaned house, if you will. I hate to use that term, but he killed most of the ministers, most of the people serving in government because he was a native person and the people who ruled were American Liberians. You understand? It was an uprising from the native people. He kept my father because one, my father was a native person and they had the same last name. But we have no relation. I, I, I'm not related to President Doe, and my last name's Doe. Right? I'm not related to the president in any way. My father wasn't related to him. But he respected my dad because my dad did the security job that he, that he liked. So my dad became the assistant director of the Secret Service for the country. And all throughout the 1980s, my dad worked for this dictator, which as a five, six, seven, eight-year-old, you don't know. right? So whenever I would go and visit my father at his office, the White House of the country, call it the executive mansion, sometimes I would meet the president. Like President Doe was on the sixth floor, and my dad was on the fourth floor. So sometimes my dad would go up and he'd be like, oh yeah, we're gonna go to the president's office. And the president, a dictator, which I didn't know, always gave toffees. This is, I know this is weird, but he gave me a toffee. He's like, oh, small Doe, here's a toffee. And I liked the guy because he gave toffees. But <laughs> what I didn't know um, was that he suppressed all opposition in the country. And there was a part of Liberia in the north where the people of that tribe were always launching kind of like coup attempts against them, and he didn't like those people. So periodically, he would send troops up there, and it would raid those areas and actually kill people. I didn't know that. My dad protected us from that. Uh, my dad felt, my brothers tell me now, my dad felt like he was a professional, and he was doing a job to take care of the life of the man he was in charge of taking care of. My dad came to this country a number of times. He went to so many countries. My dad had some of the greatest stories of meeting world leaders that I can, I can share some names. You'd be like, oh my gosh. My dad met Nikolai Ceausescu, who was a dictator in Romania. And he met a lot of leaders uh, across the world. Mm. But he would come home with these incredible stories and these incredible food from different places. Um, in 1980, well, let me stop there. My mother, let me talk about my mother. Um, my mother, um, there's going to be a lot of tears tonight. I hope you guys are OK with it. Um, my mother was illiterate um, and put her life on hold so that her five kids um, could, could be raised and go to school. My mom mopped the floors at the University of Liberia, which is across the street from the executive mansion. So my parents worked really close. Um, and I would go after school when I was a kid, go to see my mom, and she had all these other ladies who also gave out toffees. Toffees is like a, a theme. Uh, I'll tell you another story about toffees. But um, that's what my mom did. And in 1988, 
in the middle of about the June or July of probably September of 1988. My mother hadn't been back to her village in a long time since she had left, like years and years before. She went back to her village, and when she came back to us, it was about Christmas of that year, and she just didn't feel well. Um, on Christmas, the day, after, the day before Christmas, Christmas Eve of 1989, no, 88, my mother got sick. And my mother died in April of 1989. I was nine years old. Turns out my mother was poisoned by one of her family members. We'll talk about that. I'll just put that over here for a second. So that's my mother's story. It's incredible because when I started to go to school, I recognized my mother couldn't read or write. So I started helping my mother to learn to read and write. And she said, one day, you should be a teacher. Um, I was a teacher for seven years in this country, in, in part just to honor her. Like she would, and just think of an adult. Um, I didn't know that when you pass a certain age, kind of your brain gets, your brain gets locked in a sense. If you don't pick up certain things, right? And just for her to, to her penmanship and all those kind of things. And she would always ask when I came from school, what did the teacher teach you today? I thought she just wanted to know like how parents ask, but after a while I figured out she couldn't sign my stuff, and she couldn't do this. So when she passed away, it was a significant loss. Um, that was 89. Um, and the rest of 89, I ended up spending, I was, it was a really hard time for me, so I ended up spending time with aunts and uncles and different places just so I could have like a motherly person in the house because I was the last of six children. My sister is my, my dad's uh, daughter, but she came to live with us. So it was all boys. So it was a hard house to kind of grow up in. When you're the youngest boy, you're like getting sent, getting you know, knocked around and stuff. My brothers are way older than I am. Like I have a brother who just passed away actually, 21 years, 19 years, 16 years. So they're all way older than I am. Anyway, so at the end of 89, we got word that um, a man named Charles Taylor um, had started an uprising in the north of Liberia where the tribal people did not like the government. He started an uprising um, in the north, and that uprising started to move, he started invading the country from the north. I'm gonna take a little break and give you a little bit and make an American connection for you. Charles Taylor lived in this country, went to school at Bentley College in Massachusetts, got an economics degree, a very charismatic man, a very smart man, um, was leading the, the Liberians, kind of Liberians in America, they call it, it's like an association of people, and people trusted him. Well, he had committed some kind of crime here, embezzlement, actually he embezzled funds from Liberia and fled and got here and was arrested and put in jail in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Well, what happened or what didn't happen, there are lots of theories there. He escaped prison, I will use escape as a quote, thank you, um, and actually uh, went through this country, ended up in Mexico, and ended up in Libya, and trained his army in Libya for years, and then had him come down through West Africa and started the uprising in Liberia. Some would say it was supported by this country because our country, uh, President Doe has sided with kind of communist countries towards the end of his reign and started to lose support from President Reagan and those people here. But that's all kind of in that world. You know the world, right? It's kind of like, I don't know what you call it. So Taylor starts this uprising 
And within six months, he, he owns 80% of Liberia. The government forces don't have the fortitude or the, the kind of motivation to defend President Doe, so they just kind of shrink down and Taylor's forces are well-trained and they get to the capital city of Monrovia where we live, excuse me, within six months. So to set the scene, let me give you some taste and smell and, and kind of context to put you in the scene. Monrovia is on the coast of Liberia. There are like three highways out and the, the international airport, the one international airport that we have in Liberia is kind of a little bit out of the city. So when Taylor's forces got close to the city, they took the, they, they took the airport and took all those highways so there was no way in or out of the country except by sea. My dad, knowing that this situation was gonna be tough for us, tried to get us passports to try to get us out. But it was too late at that point. Everything was kind of shut down. Um, so he told us, uh, he sat us down. It was June 3rd, I remember. It was a Sunday night in 1990. And he said, I'm not sure what's going to happen to us because Mr. Taylor's forces are way too powerful. It looks like they're going to overtake the government. They're going to overthrow the government. And it's going to be harsh. The next few, I remember, he saying, I remember him saying, the next few weeks are going to be hard for us. And then at the same time, we were listening to the radio, and the BBC was you know, interviewing Taylor and all those kind of things. And one of the things Taylor said that stuck with me as an 11-year-old, he said, if your last name is Doe, if you're from the Kron tribe, which I'm from the Ku tribe, or you work for the government, you will be killed. So if you, three of those, two out of three of those things, I was implicated that I, we were going to lose our lives. So my dad said, we're going to send all of you into hiding starting with you, meaning the youngest one, um, I was 11. So my brother, my, my second oldest brother, had just gotten married, and he moved to the west side of the city. So I, I was my, he was my favorite brother, I can say that now, even though my, my other brother's coming tomorrow to help me, to take care of me <laughs> for surgery. <laughs> um, and I went to live with my brother Roosevelt, who was the junior. Uh, my dad's name is Roosevelt. He had just gotten married six months earlier. So I left home. My dad said, oh, just pack clothes for three weeks. You know, you'll be gone for three weeks and this thing will ball over and the, the government will change. I don't know what will happen. Maybe there will be a peace talks or something will be settled and they will, they will make amicable, amicable decisions. Well, I moved out of the house with my clothes for three weeks and I went to the west side of the city. And I, I saw my dad one more time after that. Um, the war finally reached, they were fighting, the government forces were at that point they were at their last, so they're fighting. They're fighting in the city. And the war reached my neighborhood on August 10th, um, 1990. And they fought in my neighborhood. Um, I, it's hard for me to say. Um, I would say, in theory, I'm a pacifist because of what I saw. The bullets were flying through my house. We were on the ground all day. And I could hear the soldiers as they were fighting, communicating, talking, like there were bombs, the artillery was going back and forth, and they're fighting. And by the end of the day, when things quieted down, the rebel soldiers, the people who were trying, Taylor's forces who were trying to take over the government, started knocking on people's doors and saying, you guys have to leave because the area is not safe. There's going to be a retaliation. We're going to, this territory is going to be disputed for a while, and you don't want to be caught in a crossfire of war. So we grabbed our bags. My brother, his wife, her family were all walking. Um, we, we had to leave everything. I just took my bag and we left. 
um, which by the way, at this point, there's no food, so I'm eating one meal a day. Um, and it wasn't like a gourmet meal. It's like rice and salt or rice and greens or whatever. And we started walking. And I recognize that the soldiers that Taylor has are not what I thought they were. They were teenagers. They were child soldiers. The kids were my age. I was 11. Some of them could barely carry the weapons. And they were killing people. They would ask you what your tribe was. And if you couldn't respond or you responded the wrong way, you were killed. I saw 50 or so people killed on that day. And I'm walking and I'm just praying and no one asks me what my name is. Because at that point, we had adopted my brother's, my brother's wife's maiden name. So my name was Marcus Davis, if I was asked. So we're walking and they're still firing the artillery. They're just, stuff is dropping. It's like a movie, but it's actually my real life. And we're walking. We made it, we made it I think, seven miles to walk that day. And we're safe. We're behind enemy lines and we have to go into hiding. So we're in hiding and we're in hiding for three months, just kind of in a, in a makeshift house that we found. And it's a four bedroom house, I remember, and we lived there with 80 people. People just sleeping everywhere. People we don't know, uh, you don't know who these people are. We're all kind of sharing because we're internally displaced refugees or whatever you want to call it. And we lived in that house for three months. At the end of that three months, we were down to 55 people. Hunger killed people. Malaria killed people, people left and didn't come back. Um, my job as an 11-year-old was to go out every day and get water for our family. Um, and I was risked to do that because my brother couldn't go because he looked so much like my dad and the rebels were looking for my dad. So I went to this creek with a big barrel and I would push it with my legs and fill out our barrel of water and then bring it back to the house. Every day that I left the house from August till November, I, I slept in a little corner and I would pack my things so that when I got killed, um, no one had to clean up after me. And one day, it was like October or November of that, it was October. The stream that the creek I used to get the water from for us to drink was kind of running like slower than usual. So I thought, what's going on? I'm going to go to the top of the stream. So I walked through the bushes. And when I got to the top of the stream, I didn't know if they had just started doing this or they had been doing this all along. But the soldiers were dumping dead bodies at the top of the stream. And that water we had been drinking for months. So I went back home. I said, we can't drink this water because people are dead up there, right? And it was piles of people. And um, so we dug a well in where we live so we could get water. And that water never turned like, it never turned clear. And we, that's what we had to drink. And it was, I can't tell you how rough it was. I remember one time after a few months, I looked at myself in the mirror and I didn't recognize myself. I lost so much weight. I know I was losing weight because I kept, you know, moving the belt holes. I kept putting new holes in my belt. And I, at that point, I put so much holes in my belt, Frank, I couldn't put any more holes in my belt. So I was using my shoelaces to keep my pants up. Like I, was, I couldn't recognize myself. Well, let me zoom out a little bit and tell you what's happening kind of in the world view. At this point in world history, Saddam Hussein had just invaded Kuwait. 
for the first Iraq war. So the whole world's eyes was on that situation. And that's where everybody's, everybody's kind of eyes, but that's, what, that's the time period that when that thing was going on in Liberia. So the West African countries decided that they were gonna send peacekeepers to Liberia because Doe was still in power, Taylor was trying to take him out of power, and then Taylor had a, there was a split in Taylor's forces. I don't know what happened, what didn't happen, but then it became a three-sided war. Another warlord emerged, this guy named Prince Johnson. So it became a three-sided war within this little city. And, and I mean, people were just dying, and they're just fighting every day. Um, I will say this. And Taylor was in control of 80% of the country. Johnson probably had 5% of the country, and Doe had the rest. Taylor was the strongest army in the fight because he had all the resources that Liberia has, the diamonds, the timber, and unfortunately, the rubber. Liberia, I think, is the second or third leading producer of rubber. Firestone Tires gets their rubber from Liberia. There's a town in Liberia called Firestone. Um, it's hard for me to say this. Uh, there is a Nightline special you can go online and find. Um, Firestone kept, kept doing business with Taylor because they couldn't stop their supply. And Taylor was using that money to buy more weapons, so he felt like Eventually, he would win the war because he had control of most of the country, if you understand. So the peacekeepers get to Liberia. Doe's army is running out of weapons. Johnson's army is running out of weapons. So they welcome the peacekeepers. <laughs> Taylor doesn't want the peacekeepers to be there, so he's fighting against them. So there was a huge, another huge battle in the city um, as the peacekeepers land because they came by ship. Now, the peacekeepers came with overwhelming force. Nigerians, the Ghanaians, Senegalese, they all had an air force. Um, so when they came, they would bomb at night or during the day because there was no air defense. So their planes would fly really low and just level the place. And sometimes I would get up and go look for food and the houses would just be gone. Um, to this day, I live in Tucson. It's an air force base. God has a sense of humor, right? I guess. To this day, whenever I hear those planes, I go back to those days because they were like, I don't know, F-14s or whatever they're called, but the fast-moving ones. I can, whenever, Dave is always like, oh, there's one of them. Whenever I hear the sound, it always, it always takes me back. Trauma is a real thing. Um, but I just remember those planes, when they came, it would be so loud. And by the time you, you heard them, by the time they were leaving, you could hear the people crying. You could hear the, the screams and the ground would shake and the windows would crack and things like that. War is, is, is bad for soldiers, but when you're in the midst of it as a civilian, as a child, I wanted it to stop so bad. You can't control it and you're like, one day, there's a bomb is gonna drop on us and we're gonna be gone. And it was, those days were hard. It just, it felt like it just kept getting worse and worse and worse. Well, in early, no, uh, late October, early November of that year, the peacekeepers pushed, fought Taylor and pushed him out of the neighborhood that we lived in. I'm going to tell you guys a God story in the middle of all this. One night, Johnson and the peace, Johnson's forces, I hope you're keeping track of these people. I'm trying to, I, I, okay, Johnson's, uh, another warlord, he and the peacekeepers got together and they were sharing weapons, all that kind of stuff, and they were helping, they were fighting together. 
So they pushed Taylor's forces out. But Johnson's people still wanted to kill people like me. So one time, Johnson's forces came to our house in the middle of the day and said, everybody in the house, get out. We're going down the list and we're going to find out. They said the phrase, we're going to separate sheep from goat. I was like, oh, Lord, this is, I, I know what that meant. They're going to kill people. And they had us all line up outside. And it was kind of a scary day because we're sitting, I was sitting on the front porch. We were in the school, so we're playing cards. And it just got eerily quiet. And next thing you know, I thought, oh, I've never seen that tree before. That brush doesn't live there. I've never seen that brush. And all of a sudden, there's a soldier there. There's a person there. And they all just started kind of advancing to the house. And all of a sudden, they started standing up and with bullets on them, grenades hanging all over them. And they said, everybody get out of the house. And we got out of the house, and they started going down the line. Everybody's lined up. And they started asking people their names and their tribes. And I thought, just a matter of time before they get to me, and they find out who I am. I remember looking down on the ground. And in that moment, I saw like ants, you know ants, right? Ants are on the ground just walking. And I said, man, I wish I was an ant right now. You know, and they're just going by their life, right? And the guy, I remember, got to me, and he's holding this gun, and he just kind of, the head of the gun just kind of moves over my head and doesn't even ask me my name. And he goes on. They don't kill anybody in the house that day, but we were told, uh, one of my aunts had a dream and said, I don't think we should stay in this house tonight, the next night. So we all left. The following night, Taylor's forces came back in the neighborhood, and they had seen Johnson's forces in, our, in, that, in that neighborhood that day. So like, you guys are supporting Johnson's forces. And they killed a few people that we had known in that house that night. And we were so blessed, or whatever you want to call it, I guess. And we, they didn't kill us, so we left. We made it that day back to the center of Monrovia. You guys with me? It's okay? Okay. I survived. I'm alive. <laughs> right? I'm alive. Um, we made it to the center of town, and we get to the ports, like the harbor of Monrovia, the city. And my, brother, my brother's wife is pregnant at the time. And we're trying to figure out how we can get out of the country. We got word that the peacekeepers were taking um, people who had dire medical needs. Everybody had a dire medical need at that point, right? Everybody did, right? But people who were shot, who had been wounded, um, pregnancy, all those kind of people who needed were like, I mean, I could count my ribs at that point. I could use, I could have used some help. Um, so every day, people would line up at the port, and they would interview you. The soldiers would just ask you, what's your medical need, this and that? Who do you know? Sometimes people would bribe them and stuff, and you would get on this ship, and the ship would leave Liberia, and you would become a refugee. A lot of people were turned away. So I remember we were, we were on the line. It was late at night. They told us the ship is leaving tomorrow morning. My brother and his wife were like, we have to get on this ship this night. So we're standing on line, and my brother's wife get there, and she's pregnant, and the soldier sees her and says, yes, you, you qualify to go. And he looks at my brother. My brother says, that's my wife. He said, all right, you're good to go. And then he looks at me. And my brother and his wife started to walk away. And I'm standing there. And the soldier said, who are you? My brother says, well, that's my little brother. And he says, you can't go because you're not an immediate family member. He can go with his wife, but you can't go. And I'm like, what do you mean I can't go? I don't know where the rest of my family is. I don't know who my brothers are. My, my, I assume my parents, I assume my family had been killed because I hadn't seen them. Um, and I'm sitting there thinking, I'm going to have to become a child soldier just so I can eat. Or I'm going to have to do something or mouth off to somebody so they kill me and, and that's it. 
And my brother says, he turns around and he says, he's my brother. He doesn't have anybody else alive in the world. So can we please take him? And the soldier said, you look like a child soldier, one of those kids that I've been fighting against and have killed my comrades and stuff like that. And I told him I wasn't. And he said, all right, you can get on the ship. Man, I grabbed my bag so fast. <laughs> I, jumped on, I jumped on board. They were using this. They were using containers to kind of lift people on a ship. And ship is a loose term. It's more like a boat that was a supply boat that was bringing uh, military supplies into the country. So we got on the ship. I didn't know where the ship was going. I didn't care. And I left Liberia for the first time the next morning. I never left Liberia before. And when I left Liberia, I told myself I would never, ever come back to this country from what I saw. We landed in a country called Ghana, English-speaking um, British colony. And we lived in Ghana for three whole years. Frank, we want to keep track of these questions. <laughs> can, I, can I just keep going? Is yeah. that okay? Yeah. Okay. So we get to Ghana, and I'm a refugee. And um, we lived in a camp, hard life. Uh, when you're a refugee in another country, people, teach, people treat you like you're absolutely just nothing, you know. The Ghanaians did welcome us. Um, after a few weeks, we were able to move out of the refugee camp. My brother found work. My sister-in-law found work. They had their kid after a few uh, months. And I started going to school again. I had been out of school at that point for about a year, almost a year and a half. And they had signed a peace accord back in Liberia. So there was a peace treaty. There was a ceasefire. So the war, was, the war had stopped temporarily. So my brother and his wife had the idea that they were going to go back to Liberia to find, to see if we could find family members who were alive or anything, anything. So I told them, I don't want to go. <laughs> you guys can go back there. I don't want to go. So they said, okay. Um, they left me as a 12-year-old with a neighboring family that had a farm. The farm had pigs and corn. They went back. So I was working for this family at 12 years old, going to school, waking up super early. And it was non-mechanized farming. So I'm like messing with pigs and finding food. To this day, that's why I don't like the smell of beer, because pigs eat the hops of the, what's left over. So I can't stand the smell of beer. <laughs> um, but that's what the pigs ate, and that's what I work with. Um, when my brother returned, um, he had a letter. And one of my brothers I hadn't seen in two years, or almost three years, was able to get a letter to my brother. He had heard that my brother was in the country, and hand kind of that letter was handed around, and it got to my brother. But it was addressed to me. So my brother got back. He knew that he knew the story that the letter contained, but he didn't tell me. So I opened the letter, and I started to read the letter. And my brother says, "We're still behind rebel lines. Um, we're still hiding. We're still eating one meal a day, and it's really hard. But I want to tell you something." Excuse me, but I'm going to tell you this in, in full so you can feel the brunt of this like I did. He said, um, our father um, was interrogated for five days by rebels. And on the fifth day, the rebels told them that he was not coming back. Um, my father, who is my absolute hero, Was, was stripped naked and beheaded. 
and left out to die. Well, he was dead, and, and dogs ate my father's body. When I read that letter, my life changed. I used to go to Awana groups while we were in, while we were at refugees, because I loved, I, I, didn't, I didn't understand church. I didn't understand it. I loved it because we played ping pong, and we ran, and we did play soccer and things like that. And they were girls. Um, <laughs> but I, I withdrew because we used to sing the song, red and yellow, black and white. They're precious in a sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world. And I couldn't reconcile what had happened to me. My mom was dead the year before. Within 16 months, I was an orphan. I didn't even know it. I'm working on another family's farm. I had learned two languages, Ghanaians, you know, Ghanaian languages, so I could be able to exist. In school, we spoke English, but outside of school, we didn't. So from that point on, I made a decision. I was 12 that I'm going to find a man. My brother told me the name of the man who killed my dad. I'm going to find the man who killed my dad, and I'm going to kill him like he killed my dad. We lived in Ghana for another year, and my brother and his wife said, well, we can't go back to Liberia because the fighting has started again. So we're going to try to come to the United States. So we filed paperwork to come to the United States. And I don't want to offend anybody, but when people say no offense, they're about to offend you, right? So here we go. <laughs> we here, with a blue passport, can buy a ticket and go to almost any country in the world. It's not the opposite way. So when people hear about refugees, they're not just buying tickets to come. You have to, I went through this process like 18 months where I, I was interviewed by immigration, by CIA, just to make sure I was who I said I was. And it takes them a long time to vet you before you come. Someone like me who had been through all this, I sat, I sat with probably five different people, and it would ask you the same question, like 30 different ways, all, just to make sure you're telling the truth. And they compare stories with other people, and people could say, oh, yeah, it's Mr. Doe's son, whatever. So we got permission to come to the States after all those interviews, and um, we we're going to come as refugees. And when I found out I was coming, it was November of 92 when I found out I was coming. I was still in, 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 in um, middle school, and I was the president of the class. And uh, <laughs> I used to take, I used to wake up at 3.30 in the morning just to make it to school because <laughs> I would take different buses. Anyway, that's another story. But when I told my friends I was coming to America, they were so excited. They, like, they, they saved money for me so that we could be able to afford it because you have to be able to buy your own ticket to come. So once you get permission. So we bought the tickets. We came to the United States March 31st, 1993. <laughs> we landed in Boston March 31st, 1993. I'd never seen temperatures below 75. <laughs> <laughs> and if you look at meteorological records, it had, they had just had a nor'easter. <laughs> I don't know what a nor'easter was at that point. Somebody said, oh, they just had a nor'easter. I don't know what that is. But when I walked outside, I found out what that was. <laughs> it was so cold. Like, my body couldn't make sense out of it. It was like, it was like 30 degrees. I was like, what's happening here? Somebody had told me that, man, you're not going to be able to play soccer because it's just too cold. You know? We used to play soccer barefoot, right? Just outside. Well, can't do that anymore. 
and I, for the next five years, had the hardest time adjusting to American culture. Um, I was in the country for about two weeks, three weeks. It was the fourth quarter of the school year. Kids are, you know, everybody's used to it. It's the end of the year. And the counselor saw me and said, hey, you're a new transfer student. And my English is fine. You can tell my English is, my English is great. She said, you're a transfer student. I said, yeah. She said, okay, here's your schedule. Here's your lock. You know, your, your, your periods and all that kind of stuff. Well, I didn't know how to use a combination lock. My first period class was gym. I didn't know gym was short for gymnasium. And I just had all these books. I couldn't figure out my locker. So you can imagine, I didn't have the latest fashions. We were, we were dirt poor. So I was made fun of. And I didn't understand the food. Pizza was terrible. <laughs> it was just that chicken. I didn't get it. Like, what's happening? And I didn't do well in school. Um, and I will say this, and then Frank, I will go to, we can go to the next question. Um, what saved me? When I got to high school, what saved me socially, not academically, was that I was a good athlete. And because my brother and his wife had two kids and they were focused on their family, my home life was super difficult. We rarely ever talk about the war. We didn't talk about being an orphan, all those kind of things. So I, I learned to play American sports. Every season, I played something. So I learned to play football. I learned to play basketball. I ran track and field. I played, I didn't play soccer in high school, but I played collegiate soccer. And I played uh, I collegiate track and field. So I learned football and I, I really liked football. I don't think football liked me. <laughs> <laughs> but that's how I made friends. Um, that's how I kept my grades at a 2.0 level, just so I didn't have to go home. Because when I went home, it was kind of, it was a, no one paid attention to me. And we attended a church, which I wasn't paying attention when we attended church, but I knew at the end of service, they had a bread giveaway, like a food giveaway. That's how we ate. Panera Bread or whatever the place is had this bread, and I would gather the bread and take it home, and that's how we ate. But those first few years were very, very difficult. I didn't do well in school. I was, I wouldn't say I was a behavior problem. My teachers might disagree. Um, but I couldn't concentrate. When it got really quiet in the room, my mind went back to the war. I, I hadn't dealt with it. I hadn't talked about it. So I didn't do well. Anyway, I'll stop there. So, so then uh, a lot of that story that you told us, uh, like about your mother and your father, for instance, eventually led, and you were very angry and wanted revenge. Yeah. Uh, and that led to this other narrative of trying to figure out forgiveness, which yeah. led to your TEDx talk, right? Yeah. So yeah. I've seen your TEDx talk. I know Barb, where'd Barb go? Oh, there, Bar you've seen it, right? Very moving, right? Yeah, anybody else seen the, the, yeah, so several others have watched it, very moving. So tell us a little bit about that and then we can get into the re-reconciled stuff because it, it, I mean, this is, the work that God has done in your life is just powerful. It's incredible. Uh, what God has done in my life is incredible. Some days when I look in the mirror, I can't believe that it is me. I really can't. I, I cry all the time because I'm like, every day, I, how did I get here? I can't believe it. So um, I'm trying to answer this question. Uh, the TEDx talk, which was great, um, at 19 years old, 
my brother, the war was still going on. My brother, who I was here with the States, who I was here with in the States, I wasn't in college, by the way. I was just kind of, I was working at Burger King. I didn't have the grades to go to college. I was kind of bumming around in the streets. And my brother had a massive heart attack at 38 years old, and they said he, would, he wouldn't live. He was the only family member I still knew was alive. It was like another blow to, to I, just, I just couldn't handle it. And it was, again, right around Christmas, 1998, when I went down in the basement of my house and I said, if there is a God, which I knew there was, I didn't doubt there was a God, but I said, you gotta do something to change this life because I just feel like this is one blow after another and I, cannot, I can't handle it. And that was when I was like, God, do something with this life that I have. And at that point, it wasn't a 180 because I was still, I, could, I didn't, wasn't reading the Bible regularly. I was kind of like grasping for different things that I'd heard and, 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 and listened to. But I started to grow a little bit in my faith and I started reading the Bible. And when I was 24 years old, I had graduated college at that point, and I was working at a Christian school as a teacher, and it was before that, actually. I read, I read um, the Lord's Prayer, which I had memorized, and the verse right after the Lord's Prayer, Matthew 6, verse 14 and 15, I'm going to say it. Um, your Heavenly Father will forgive you, but if you do not forgive others, your Heavenly Father won't forgive you, something like that. And it was like, oh. Because I still had this, this absolute hatred for the woman that poisoned my mom and the man that murdered my dad. And I knew I had to come to reconciliation or do something with that. And the something that I wanted to do was so painful that it was hard. So for the next four or five years, I was wrestling with this. What am I going to do with this? What do I do with this? At 28, I started going to a counselor just to deal with my grief. <laughs> and the counselor to the best of my knowledge, I didn't know she was a Christian, said, what if you, what if you dealt with the people, what if you chose to forgive the people who killed your parents? It's like a hammer on my chest. Why would I do that? They deserve something that, they deserve what they're going to get, right? It's what I thought. And then gradually the Lord started working in my heart and she told me to do an exercise where I would imagine the person who killed my parents sitting in front of me and I would tell them what I wanted, what I could tell them. And I started working through that, and that was really difficult. Um, most nights, I would stay up really bad. My neighbors, I was living in a one-bedroom apartment, probably thought I was crazy. Because I would be screaming in the middle of the night, talking to this chair, and just, <laughs> it was kind of crazy. <laughs> but I was angry. I was working, working through that. So I made a decision in 2008. Um, uh, to extend forgiveness to the people who killed my parents. And in 2010, I bought a ticket um, to go back to Liberia to do just that. And that's, that's what the TED Talk's about. Um, I wrote an autobiography that's out. You can buy it in any, wherever you want to buy it, Amazon, Barnes & Noble. Um, it's out there. But I tell that story of going back to Liberia towards the end of the book and what it was like. It was so great. Um, I hadn't been in Liberia in 20 years. I hadn't seen my siblings in 20 years. When I landed in Liberia, I get to the house. My brothers don't really recognize because it was kind of a surprise, but not quite um, because I told one of my brother's wives that I was coming. Pause. One of my brother's wives does not mean 
I have a brother that has multiple wives. <laughs> African, <laughs> right? I have brothers, and they all have one wife, and I told one of them. <laughs> okay? So, and I get there, and my brothers, we're just, we stay up, and we talk about just our stories from the last time I saw him when I was 11, I'm 31, and we missed so many years. Um, really good, really good conversation. So um, the people at, at TED heard my story, read the book, and thought it would be a great idea for me to share it. And I shared it in front of, quote unquote, a secular audience. Um, and I shared this story about forgiveness and how powerful forgiveness is. Without forgiveness, I'm not sitting in this chair, I'm not who I am. I dealt with the elephant in the room of my life with God's help, not only reconciling uh, vertically with God, but reconciling horizontally with the people that I had the most hatred for who took something from me that I would never get back. I graduated college, I was a college athlete, I got married, all the things that your parents are supposed to be there for, my parents weren't there. The most vivid moment in my memory of knowing that my parents were absent, it was a lot of moments, but it was senior day, college, you know, senior day, right, your parents are supposed to walk out, and I'm, I'm the captain of the soccer team in college, and everybody's walking out with their parents. I remember just being in tears when the national anthem was playing because I'm standing on the field and I'm the only one that just does not have anyone. And it hit me like, man, somebody took this from me and I can't do anything about it, you know, and it hurt. I get married and my parents' pictures are there. We barely have pictures of my parents because my house was completely looted during the war. I don't have, I have two pictures that I got from somebody else of me as a kid. You know, but we lost everything. You know, people, people did all those kind of things to me. But I made a decision and it, it absolutely freed me. It freed me, I can't tell you from the prison of unforgiveness. I was so angry. Um, I was so angry and I was so, I felt like I was justified in my anger. But then I, I realized that for all, all I've sinned and I had done some things that, that didn't equal what they had done but those people who did things were not the monsters that I thought they were when I met them. When I met the former child soldiers, I realized they were kids, you know, who, I don't, I don't know how to explain it, but sin is in all of us. And once I recognized that my sin is no greater than theirs, and I saw God's mercy to me, and I felt like, oh, man, I, if you don't get to the point where you understand your own sin, it's hard to forgive others, right? I'm not going to preach. I'll stop there. So did you meet? Uh, did you did you meet uh, the gentleman? So yeah. I I did not meet the gentleman who killed my my dad. Um, he had been killed in war, so he lost his life. And so I was holding a grudge against somebody who had been dead for years and years. <laughs> if that makes sense. But it, what I did meet was some young men who had fought in the war, and a vivid moment, of sitting in a barber shop. And I tell this story in a, in a TED talk. And I'm in Liberia, you know, it's hot. I didn't realize, which hot is a, another thing. Um, but it's humid, and we're sitting in this barber shop, and I give the guy 20 US dollars, which is like an equivalent of 20 haircuts. And he clears out the schedule, and he's taking his time, like he's doing everything, like, you know, beard <laughs> shave, like he's doing his best stuff. And, and then he asked me, he said, you know, what's your name? And I said, my name's Marcus Doe, and I make sure I said the last name. And he pauses, and he said, Doe? And I said, yes, and he said, because the barbershop is right across the street from my father's house in my old neighborhood that I grew up in. And he said, you guys lived in that house? And I said, yes. He said, oh, 
and there's a number of other guys sitting in the shop. It's a very small space. And he said, I fought for the MPFL, which is the, the rebel soldiers that would have killed me. And he said, we were looking for, for you to kill, you know, 20 years ago. And all of them in the shop were former soldiers. They were in their 30s, and they all started telling me their stories. I killed 50 people. I killed 35 people. I'm an alcoholic because I can't sleep. I live in a graveyard because I can't deal with, because I'm not accepted in society anymore. And he said, why did you come back? And I didn't know what to say. And I said, I came back for people like you. And he was like, oh. And we had this conversation. We all started to cry. It was so moving. And I thought, they're not as... They're not the monsters that I thought they were. And these were kids that killed people every which way. Um, the lady that killed my mom, my brothers wouldn't let me meet because they were, they were afraid of her. Um, when I got back to the States, at that point I was dating my wife Annie, and we were sitting in my apartment, and the phone rang. And I answered the phone, and the person asked to speak to Jungle Boy, which is my name in Liberia, because I was a, just a wild kid. I had scars everywhere. I was always in the woods doing all kinds of crazy things, snakes, all that. I, I, just, I just did that. Um, my name was Jungle Boy. And she said, can I speak to Jungle Boy? Whenever somebody says that, I know they really know me from, from when I was a kid. And I, answered, and I said, yes, yeah, this is a Jungle Boy. And she said, I'm not going to say her name. And she said her name. I said, oh. And she just said, I'm sorry for what happened 20 years ago. Can you forgive me? And I said, yes. And she goes on to say, I've lost all my teeth. My kids are in school. And I need your help. Um, I, I, this is going to sound terrible. But I support a lot of people now in Liberia, like school fees and, and Western, you know, Western Union. It's like, Western Union probably loves me. Um, but I sent her some money so that her kids could go through school. Some of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, and then help her sort out her health and all those kind of things. Um, and I felt indifferent, but I also felt good. I felt it was a freeing experience for me. And last summer when I was in Liberia, I asked to see her, and she said she didn't want to see me. I think she's still afraid that I'm going to do something to her, which I won't. She, my brother had passed away like last summer, and I went back to Liberia. And she was supposed to come to the funeral. She's a close family member. I, I, I don't want to say too much. Um, so we, I knew her. Um, I knew her as a kid. But she didn't want to come to the funeral because I was there. Um, but I've, I've forgiven her. Um, I care deeply for her. And if she ever needs help and asks me for help, I would help her. And if she passes away, I would make sure her funeral is done really well and all those kind of things. That's the kind of 180 that God has done in my life over a period of, from the time I was 12, I'm 43, 20 or so years, 30 or so years. And it's a good feeling to be on this side, having been justified by the Lord and sanctified, and now having the opportunity to extend that so people can see. But yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I know that's yeah. hard, and we appreciate it. And 
we're encouraged. I, I hope you know we're encouraged by okay. uh, how God worked in your life. And God continues to work in your life because he, now he's given you this vision for We Reconcile. Yeah. So can you tell us what that's about? Yeah. Um, how you're going to do it? I'm excited about We Reconcile. Um, everything, I feel like everything's a story, but it's good, right? We like stories. So when I was in high school here in this country, I was at the, what Americans would call the land of mid-fits, mid, misfit toys um, in the lunchroom. You guys know the lunchroom situation in high school. You don't quite fit anywhere. There's, general, you know, there's stereotypically people who did this, cheerleaders here, people who read books here. You know, jo you know. The jocks. The <laughs> yeah, I didn't want to use the terms, right? The nerds, the jocks, and this, and that, right? So I'm at this table, um, and... A lot of my friends are like athletes and stuff, but all of my friends, when we would talk about our dads, a lot of them didn't have a positive kind of image of their dad because they were living with either single moms or they were living with their grandparents and they didn't have their dad. Excuse me. I did. And I had lost my dad, but I, I, my dad was my hero. So I couldn't understand why they didn't like their dads. So I thought, at that point, I used to think, what would it be like if I could help my friends reignite a relationship with their dads? Like, I desperately wanted to. My dad's dead, right? I desperately wanted to you know, see my dad and have him encourage me and all those kind of things, but they didn't have that. So for 20 years, I thought about this idea, and then two years ago in 2020, when the pandemic hit, it God had just been tugging on my heart. You, you should do this, you should do this, you should do this. And I was like, oh, I don't know what I'm gonna do. I don't know how to do it, whatever. So in Denver, when I lived in Denver, we were, I worked at a nonprofit, and that kind of prepared me for this. I had the idea that I would develop a nonprofit, like a service that would help adults reconcile with their dads that had left them. I thought that what I went through with forgiveness and reconciliation, how freeing it was for me, I could do the same, and that's like my life story. I could do the same for my friends who have been deeply hurt by somebody, somebody that they knew and loved. So I, I wrote up this program, and I did little cohort groups of my friends who didn't have their dads, and they helped inform the program that I now call We Reconcile, and we launched it on um, Father's Day of this year. So the way it works, is that um, a father and a son or daughter would apply to the program. I'm aiming for fathers to apply to the program to say, I want to reconcile with a child that I left behind 30 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, I had a friend of mine, let me take a little break. I had a friend of mine during the pandemic, like early in the pandemic when no one was seeing anybody. I called him, I said, hey, I'm writing this program. I want to talk to you about it. He lived down the street. He's like, oh yeah, let's talk about it. Um, he's, he's a politician in Denver, lived down the street, and we walked, and I told him what I was thinking of doing, like reuniting, reconciling fathers and sons. He looked at me in the eye and he said, Marcus, I'm one of those kids. I haven't seen my dad in 37 years. My dad left our house when I was seven years old, and I, the last image I have of my dad is he has a backpack on, and he walked out of the house, and he left, and I haven't seen him since. So he didn't wait for me to start the program, he called his mom, and his mom gave him a phone number. Man, I'm going to cry again. 
um, he flew out from Colorado to North Carolina and called his dad, and his dad answers the phone. His dad's 70 years old, and when he said, hey, this is your son Charles, he said there was a gasp on the other end of the phone. And his dad agreed to meet him, and they met in a park, and he recorded the entire conversation, and he sent that conversation to me. It's a two-hour conversation. I guarantee you, if you listen to the conversation, it'll make you weep. Because his dad talks about how young he was when he had him and how impulsive, and, and he, he makes some excuses as to why he wasn't present in his son's life. Towards the end of the conversation, he gets to the point where he says, son, I'm sorry. Can we reconcile? Can we do something? Can I, can I at least try to salvage these last years? So I, I, that conversation informed me. So as I built the program, we built it in four phases. The first phase, um, I've found counselors and I've hired counselors who are trained in trauma and family systems and those things that will work with the father and the child separately and to deal with their trauma and then prepare them for reconciliation. And then we're gonna take them, we're gonna fly them to a retreat center for four days where they're gonna sit and have those conversations with their counselors present after they've been prepared for that conversation to have those conversations of reconciliation. And then when they're done with that retreat, in the third phase of the program, they will return home and start having conversations together with the counselor to determine what their relationship is gonna look like going forward, whether the dad is welcome to come meet his grandkids or, um, or they're just gonna exchange phone calls on Father's Day. Whatever they want the relationship to look like, I wanna, I wanna open, that, open that, give hope, right, and open that path so that they can continue that relationship that they, they haven't had. These conversations, what I've studied in the last two years, usually now in our society take place when the father is almost dead on his deathbed and he wants to, I'm just trying to give uh, fathers and sons and daughters one more opportunity at hope, at reconciliation, or have that conversation to deal with the elephant in the room of their lives. I think, I think, I strongly think that we as a society have accepted that unreconciled relationships are just the way they are. And I refuse to accept that, right? I know in this room, I know there's, there are people in this room who, who have that hurt in their lives. And I'm here to tell you that we will steward your story well so that you can get to the point. It is a very difficult conversation, a very difficult path to take. It's a courageous path to take. But to, to, to meet with somebody who you've had a lot of indifference or even hate towards in your life and we will work through that with counselors and ask you to come out, you come out on the other side, having reconciled or dealt with that in your life. Everybody understand me? Yeah, that's we reconcile. So um, uh, I have two more questions and okay. you can just hang in there for that. Yeah. Um, what do you, for we reconcile, you're, you're up and running, but what do you need? <laughs> well, we started, um, on Father's Day, and I've been, I've been to the Juneteenth Festival. I was the speaker at the World Refugee Day, and I'm trying to get the word out. I live in Tucson, right? I'm trying to get the word out. I'm, I'm in barber shops. I'm in different places just trying to tell people, like, I'm like this evangelist for this thing, which is so near and dear to me. But whenever I talk to people, they're like, wow, our society needs it, and not many people are doing it. I'm willing to risk that. So here's what I need. 
if you or anyone you know has lived apart from their dad and is interested in reconciliation, have them go to the website and fill out the, the, the portion to say, yes, I'm, I'm wanting to do this, right? I'm looking for this first cycle, I'm looking for 15 dads who are courageous enough to say I want to do this. The way it works is that the dad has to fill out the application. I don't want the child or the, the adult child to go back and get rejected. I want the dad to start the process. And then once the dad contacts us, the son or daughter can fill out the application. And then we accept them into the program together. Does that make sense? Right? And we will walk with them. It is, it's, we, yeah, we'll walk with them with the counselors. And then we'll, we'll take our time to make sure we deal with, we, we deal with the trauma, we deal with all the kind of things. So I'm recruiting at this point 15 fathers. I, you always hear about, I grew up with a single mom. That story is a dime a dozen. But when you, you never ever hear about the dads. But I know they're out here, right? And I, we're a safe place for the dad to say, yes, I have done this. And now I, we're not shaming the dads. We're not shaming them. We're inviting them into one more opportunity to salvage a relationship with their children and to actually put a good foot forward to walk, to walk towards reconciliation with their kids, right? So that's what I'm looking for. So if you leave this room tonight, go visit the website, pass out the information. I urge you, please, share it on your social media pages and, 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 and let people know this, this service is available to everyone. We take care of all of the counseling. I didn't want any obstacles to be in the way of reconciliation, so we will pay for the counseling. We will pay for the trip to the, to the retreat center. And at the end of it, we'll even give you resources to further your relationship. If you want to keep going with the counseling, wow. you want to keep going with those kinds of things. That's what I, I, and I will stomp like a politician to raise money so that we can get there. That's awesome. I'm sorry, I still have two questions. Right. One will be very fast. Yeah. Where, where did you go to college? I went to college at a little college called Frostburg State University in Frostburg, Maryland. Um, I played- That doesn't sound real. And it, <laughs> I know people in the West are like, Frostburg? But it's kind of tucked in between. Maryland kind of has a little panhandle. Pennsylvania is just to the north. West Virginia is just to the south and kind of west of it. But it's in the Allegheny Mountains. I was a school of probably, I don't know, 10,000 kids. That's where I was for three years, four years, playing soccer. I always say soccer was my full-time job. I was a part-time student. But that's not true, right? <laughs> but it is true. Well, one of the reasons I had to ask that was because you're, from, you're, you're living in Tucson now, and there are some people here who might be concerned that you went to the U of A. So that's good. No, so, I, yeah. I did not go to the U of A. We do have students yeah. from the U of A that come to our church. Okay. And that's okay. That's good, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, God is working. I didn't understand the rivalry until I got here. Yeah. <laughs> Nobody that. does, and whatever. <laughs> I just I like it because it's just funny to me. I could really care less. But um, so, last question: Is there anything that I didn't ask or that didn't come up that you'd like to say to us? Um, I said before, um, President JFK, when he was talking about the United States going to the moon, I think in 1962 said, we choose to go to the moon not because it is easy, but because it is hard. I realize what I just told you seems like an impossible task. But I, God gave me the vision, and it's bigger than I am. I don't even think I'm capable of getting there. But I know God 
God like pushes me out on the ice so that we can try it. So I need just a team of people to be advocates, to hear this, to see this, um, to do this. Um, I am I'm not adverse to risk taking, but I, I trust that God is doing something here. My vision and my hope is that We Reconcile becomes this thing that is in every city in this country where it's kind of like an AA thing because I want to keep it like 12 dads and son and it's 12 dads and sons and daughters all over the country reconciling to start this movement that, like I said, we have accepted that unreconciled relationship between fathers and their kids is just the norm and it is not. We can change this, we can change those relationships, we can do something and I'm glad I'm happy that my past, all the things that have happened, what I explained to you today, prepared me for such a thing as this, if that makes sense. So that's, I think that's what I wanted to say. Yeah, it, it may be the norm, but it's disordered. It's and very it's disordered. it's not what God wants. Yeah. 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 So I, I'm so thankful and grateful that you came tonight and shared with us. Thank you for doing that. And, and I'd like to, is Wheeler still here? Yeah, Steve and, and the Tylers, would you come up here also? Any other pastors or elders here? Uh, Steve, would you pray for Marcus and just these guys maybe uh, lay hands on you as, as we do this? And I'll stick around um, if you would like, sorry, i got to say this. If yeah. you would like to get on a newsletter um, or be, be in the loop of what's happening, I'll have my computer and you can put in your information um, in that way. Heavenly Father, thank you for the privilege we had today of, of hearing Marcus's story. Your creation, your plan for us, our faith is reflected in stories. You're, you're a God of stories, and we've heard a most remarkable story tonight that contains virtually all the major themes of, of life through Scripture. Um, we see tragedy, we see death, we see destruction, we see dysfunction, we see resilience. We see power, we see reconciliation, um, just all the major themes that, that define what goes on in a world that, that has fallen. But, but it also shows the hope that we have uh, that can only come through you. Uh, it, it shows uh, how you can reconcile, how you can reunify, how you can um, correct and restore relationships, uh, but only by turning to you and the power that, that you give through your Holy Spirit to us so that we can live a life that reconciles us, not just to each other, not just to your creation, but to you, uh, which is the grand reconciliation. And uh, we're so thankful that we get to hear about this ministry of reconciliation. And we ask that you, you bless Marcus uh, in this endeavor that uh, he feel uh, re-energized and supported and encouraged by us and that we find ways to participate in that adventure with him uh, to your glory and to the good of your people and uh, we just uh, ask that he return safely to to home uh, some of us know that he has a surgery coming up uh, a major surgery for for hip correction we ask that uh, that surgery go well that he be fully and promptly healed and that uh, his healthcare professionals are working at the top of their license uh, to do their best. Uh, and so, in all things, uh, we give you thanks, Father. In your son's name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you. Thank you for being here tonight, everybody. God bless.